Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome from Coolidge, Arizona. Uh, the uh, continuing class concerning the cr- chronological look at Daniel not only the chronological look, but also some of the uh, principles of that time. Uh, This is the 28th of July. It certainly feels like it in Arizona. But I want you to uh, visualize, if you can, uh, the time element uh, in Daniel. Uh, it, It begins... 600 years before the birth of Christ. And put that in perspective with nearly 100 years before that, Isaiah was writing his prophecies concerning very much the same things as Daniel's prophecies were. Uh, Of course, all of these prophecies concerning, um, especially in Isaiah, concerning the, the Jewish people and some of the Gentile kingdoms, the same thing in Daniel, uh, although Daniel's a little more specific. Another thing that we need to remember is that when Daniel was written, it was not a chronology that could be followed. It was a prophecy of things to come. But there were no dates. There were no dates because God doesn't give us dates. Um, Things like dates and uh, things of that sort are a hindrance to what is required of each person in covenant with God, and that is faith. The disciples asked Christ why he spoke in parables and didn't just speak plainly. That's right. That's right. So, um, you know, the ways of God are not the ways of men. Uh, if it was us, we'd probably be putting dates in. You ever known anyone to be dating things in in the future? Uh, men do it all the time, don't they? And when, when it comes to religious dates, they're always wrong, <clears throat> it seems. But they just keep right on going. So I guess guessing is all right. But there's no guessing in Daniel. The things we have there now... We can look at the writings uh, in Daniel and see the precise history of the kingdoms that were prophesied within Daniel, including the fifth kingdom, which is the kingdom of Christ, and the, the reason for the whole thing, really. Intended, of course, for the Jews to not only read and understand, but to comfort them, give them hope for the things of the future. Because remember, the Jews were awaiting the promise that was given Abraham, that sonship would be granted to the people of God. And 
they lived in a state of uh, they lived in a state of their sins being rolled ahead, being put off until a, a time in the future where things would be set right. That was concern, That was the day of the Lord as they knew it in the Old Testament, <clears throat> and uh, they waited many hundreds of hundreds of years for this to occur. Nonetheless, time is not an issue uh, that God worries about. Uh, that seems to be the purview of man, especially. Now, we have been, of course, starting with chapter 1, and we're into chapter 2, of which we pretty much finished uh, last week. Um God reveals through the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, concerning the four kingdoms of the Gentiles, up unto, if you will, the kingdom of Christ, the, the, the fifth kingdom, that Nebuchadnezzar saw a stone cut out of a mountain without hands, and that stone crushed the giant statue that represented all the four kingdoms of men. And that kingdom, according to the, the interpretation of the prophecy, was a kingdom that would, would never end, had no end, but it had a beginning. And the beginning was, was the time frame of the kings of the fourth uh, empire. And that empire... As I have read from Josephus, who was a historian of 2,000 years ago, and a Jewish man, that he knew that, that that kingdom was the Roman Empire. I think that's incredible. Um, today we hear that nobody knew about any of these things. Well, I guess, I guess that's just not true, is it? Yeah. <coughs> And it wasn't just the intellectuals, uh, even though Josephus was of that group. Uh, these things were known by the people. Uh, they had synagogues, and this was their teaching. There was nothing more important than the coming of the culmination of the days, the, the Messiah. Uh, and this was very important to the Jewish people, and they awaited it. Now, those kingdoms, as far as chronology goes, uh, the Babylonian kingdom, which was actually started by Nebuchadnezzar's father. He had been an Assyrian general, uh, the kingdom of the north, as it was called. He finally rebelled against that kingdom, and as a general, he destroyed the kingdom and became a kingdom in his, in his own, which became the Babylonian kingdom. He was co-regent with his son Nebuchadnezzar uh, for a number of years before his death. But that kingdom started in 625 B.C. And it ended, had an end, in 539 B.C. So we, we find, you know, it doesn't seem to be that long, but it's still quite a long time. Longer, 70 years. Yeah, it, well, it's, uh, yeah, it's 75, right, that, that's right, a little more than 70 years. Uh, as, but, as was promised to the 
Yeah, with, within that period of time there, from the captivity, the Jews were in captivity for 70 years exactly, according to the prophet Jeremiah that wrote the 70 years long before they uh, were, were to the end of the 70 years or even had begun the first part. So, now, the Babylonian kingdom was, was uh, conquered by the Medo-Persians in 539. Um, Darius and um, Cyrus, they were also, I believe, co-regent in that time. And uh, they were reigning in Babylon and a, uh, a, a kingly city uh, to the east where Cyrus was for some time. That kingdom lasted from 539 B.C. to 331 B.C., which was quite a long stretch. Uh, had many kings, many battles, was a glorious kingdom, but yet still, in, like the scripture said, inferior in splendor to the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. All of these kingdoms seemed to lack something as as time goes on mostly in internal strength um, and, and the splendor of the pageantry I guess of the kingdom and then came in 331 of course so you recognize that date of uh, that's the date of Alexander the Great in the Greek kingdom as it conquered the Persians uh, finally uh, they had had a number of battles but the final one come to pass and they were conquered that kingdom of Greece but started with Alexander who died um, shortly after he had accomplished all that he did. Uh, but that kingdom was divided into four parts and four different generals, um, Ptolemy uh, and Seleucus being the two most prominent ones, the North and South Kingdom, uh, about 320. BC. But that kingdom continued until 63 BC. So from 331 BC to 63 BC. Quite a long period of time. Lots of living in that time period and we find in Daniel quite a bit of history being recorded in, in that. In 63 BC a Roman um, as, as, as we would call him. Uh, his name was General Pompey. Uh, he had, uh, uh, had brought his power together in Rome. He was declared by the Senate the sole ruler of the Roman Republic. Not the Roman Empire, but the Roman Republic. And he set out to solve some, uh, take care of some of the battles to the east and to the north from there. And he finally met and defeated the remnants of the um, northern and southern kingdoms, actually the uh, southern kingdom, Ptolemy kingdom, in 63 B.C., and he also occupied Jerusalem at that time. You see, all of these kingdoms have a connection, of course, to the uh, the people of God, the covenant people, the uh, the Hebrews, the Jewish people, um, every one of these kingdoms 
they had to live through and within. Sometimes they were independent, and many times they weren't. So the Roman Republic, or soon became the Roman Empire, about 20 years after Pompeii, under Julius Caesar, um, in about 40 uh, B.C., it, it became that. But the Roman Empire ruled, and I'm going to say they ruled until 70 A.D. Now, and we all know that the Roman Empire <clears throat> lasted much longer than 70 A.D. But you see, in the, in the vision of Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and, and Daniel's interpretation, this is the conclusion of the so-called kingdoms of men, um, the great kingdoms. You see, we don't have kingdoms now. Uh, in, in the East, in the, the Middle East, we hear people calling their um, one region a kingdom and another region a kingdom, but they're not a kingdom in the sense of the kingdoms that we have been speaking about. They're not even close. Right. <coughs> so that system was replaced. That system is, is gone. Uh, Rome was in turmoil. As a matter of fact, uh, to be a Caesar in Rome in 70 AD and before that meant that you fought a battle in your own country, defeated your own people to take the, the, the seat of power. Uh, that's, that's not quite the, the situation that Nebuchadnezzar had in his kingdom, is it? No. Uh, that's why even though they were vicious, they were strong, they were powerful and all, they still did not have the splendor of the kingdom and as we know, the Roman kingdom after 70 A.D., even after 100 A.D. and on, became weaker and weaker and weaker as the people in the rest of the world started picking away. But the kingdom actually, or the empire actually, defeated itself internally with their own struggles and on and on. But I say 70 A.D. because that was the time when the stone cut out of the mountain without hands crushed the other kingdoms in a spiritual sense, if you will. I hate to use that word spiritual because that puts it off into some sort of a fantasy land, but nothing could be more true, nothing could be more firm than the idea of the kingdom of Christ being established and becoming the never uh, a kingdom without end, if you will. As I said, the Romans went on for many years, but what we see today, the remnants of that part of the world, we, we see struggles of all kinds in, in every place. Neil, don't you, don't you think that, that really the USA, probably right now, and the president, just in the present sense, is probably the closest thing we have to a kingdom and a king as there is in the world, simply because he's the most powerful man. Yeah. Uh, See, but some when, people look at it that way, and others loathe it because of that. Well, when we look at Nebuchadnezzar, he was unquestionably the most powerful man in the world. Right. And, and later on with the Caesars, with the Roman Empire, they were. Mm -hmm. And we don't have that now. We don't have that politically in our world. Rome didn't, uh, Alexander the Great didn't, and the Persians didn't. But God said that, that Nebuchadnezzar was the king of kings on the earth. He, had, he granted him that position. 
And uh, by the way, that, that, that's quite a distinction between him and the ones that followed. Anyway, Neil, my point being is that post-Christ and post-70 A.D. and post the destruction of Jerusalem, things have been different. Things have been different. If you study history at all, you'll find that Christianity is the most powerful influence in the world. It was the fulcrum point of history. Even in places, many places, there's little signs of it, but it's still there. And most places, uh, in in, in most of the... uh, Europe and, and uh, North and South America, Christianity is, of course, the, the most uh, prominent, the, the, the concept, Christendom, as it's known, in all of its different uh, uh, divisions at this time. But nonetheless, um, the governments of men were changed forever. The influence of Christianity ha- has a great effect uh, upon all that is, uh, any stutter, study of, uh, of uh, history of countries, you'll find the issue of Christianity and, and uh, rulers coming to loggerheads all the time. Yeah. Um, and I, I read a book years ago concerning Adolf Hitler, uh, who certainly took him some time to gain his power, but when he finally had it, what he did, and he lit, that was a country that the state religion was the Lutheran church. But there were many other churches also. Hitler knew to go out, and within the churches of Christ, of which I was, uh, I'm, was very familiar with and reading about, they went in and they took all of the elders out of all of the churches and no one ever seen any of them again. Why did they do that? How did they know to do that? They knew and they was hoping that this would weaken the assembly enough that they would disband or something of that sort, become frightened. Uh, and of course they did. Um, but this struggle is constant. But the most constant thing is the, is the church itself, the body of Christ. That's the most constant. We have a promise. Uh, we read about the promise in Daniel, the kingdom without end. <clears throat> Jesus says that the, even the gates of hell will not prevail against his church or his body. Uh, there is no questions there. But we take it by faith, don't we? We take it by faith. And, of course, that makes it more powerful yet. Now, this, I think, this whole concept, what we've been talking about is the grand teaching, if you will, of and to Daniel and the Jewish people and to the rulers of men that the God in heaven, as Daniel called him, the creator of all, uh, as even Nebuchadnezzar said, is all in all. In other words, there is not a king anywhere at any time that God cannot remove by his providence. And that's not, don't confuse providence with 
um, with any predetermination, okay? Don't include providence with, uh, with uh, not having a choice whether you do this or this, because that is not true. Uh, a reading of the scripture dismisses all of those thinking uh, processes that men have. And, you know, in the end, the idea that we're predetermined or predestined, that's just an excuse to live badly. That's all it is. That's what it comes to when you're laying on your deathbed and you know that you had a choice. That's when the fear will strike you. And there is, there's an issue that all will come to grips with one way or another. So don't, don't let that come in. And that's not what being the king of kings is all about. God is all in all. He became all in all when the final battle, <clears throat> as he said, after everything was put under the feet of his son, Jesus Christ, the kingdom was turned over to God that he could be all in all. That's what the New Testament says. Where's that at again? Well, that would be, uh, that's in 1 Corinthians 15, and it's also in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 in the oneness uh, column, which I think is probably the... Uh, all of these things being things that's been accomplished. Yeah. Way, way down around verses uh, 51. See what it says. Oh, yeah. The Apostle Paul here talking about the end, as it's known. Uh, of course, the end of the covenant. But he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We, the we there being, uh, first person, uh, plural, the apostles. So that was the subject of that, this sentence. But we shall all be changed. We will not all sleep. In other words, this event, there will be some living apostles. Some have, have fallen asleep. All right. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. That's what people call the catching away or the rapture even. That rapture is not a Bible word, so probably shouldn't use it. For this corruption must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this corruption shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall come to the pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. What's the last, uh, the last uh, uh, defeat? Is death itself, right? Verse 55, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? That's how the, that's how the Jew, that's a Jewish idiom and the way that's written there. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, I think we might have to go up a little earlier in the chapter to find the um, uh, 50. No, I'm probably up a little further. 
Okay. Up a little bit further. Speaking about the resurrection. All right. Well, I don't find the passage there about the putting things uh, under his feet. It, I know it's there somewhere. But in, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, uh, in, the, in the list, uh, starting with about verse 3, I think. Okay, giving diligence, Apostle Paul speaking to the church here, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And here, here goes the, the list, if you will. There is one body and one Spirit, even as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. You see, that's the culmination of the ages, that God is exactly as he's presented there. You know in 1 Corinthians 15, the Son, Jesus the Lord, the Messiah, becomes, uh, instead of co-regent, he becomes subject once again to who? God the Father, who is over all. What's that do with the Trinity, friends? You see, the Trinity is a mathematical equation of 33.333333, on and on it goes, of equal power, divinity, on and on it goes, between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Friends, that's never existed, not for a, not for a second, not for a minute, and it certainly isn't today. I, I found the found the ver, uh, the verse in First Corinthians. Okay. Fifteen. Verse twenty-four. Then cometh the end. The end. Well, this was written a long time ago, and that end has come. When he shall deliver up the kingdom of to God, even the Father, when he shall have abolished all rule and all authority and all power, that is all things standing against who. Christ, against the power of Christ, against the kingdom that was cut out of the, the mountain without hands. For he must reign till he hath put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be abolished is death. You see, death is what? Death is the, the, the sting of sin, right? The punishment for sin. And the separation. And the separation from God, that's, that's gone. That's why Jesus told Mary, the, the sister of Lazarus, when he was dead in the ground, that he that believeth in me shall never die. You know, Christians keep forgetting that death is not the same today as it was then, before, before the Messiah. And Satan had great power in death. It was a separation from God. Uh, it caused those to, to go to Hades where they were awaiting. Yes, there was a, uh, a chamber of Abraham's bosom, but there was also the place of torment. So, but those things are gone now. All things have been made new that were under, that were under the covenant 
uh, declarations that God put. For he put all things in subjection under his feet. That is, God put those things in subjection under the feet of Christ. But when he saith, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who did subject all things unto him. You see how careful the scripture is? The Father has never been subject to the Son. But the Son has always been subject to the Father. Didn't Jesus say, the Father is greater than I? Oh, I think he did. He deferred to his Father. Every miracle that Jesus uh, was instrumental in causing was done through the power of his Father. It was what it's known as wherein he said, so that you know I have the, the authority to do this, that authority in the Greek is not, there's not just one word for authority like maybe in the English. There's many. That is delegated authority. What they, the Jews heard Jesus say is, so that you know that I have been delegated with this authority, rise and walk. And he did. That's what they heard. But when we read our Bible, we don't read that, do we? Jesus is a miracle worker. Well, of course he was. The Son of God. By the power of God. God is all in all. And these things all happened. That God may be all in all. The last of the 28th verse. And friends, that's where the world lives today. We live in the all in all world. So, to me, this is the, the great teaching. Uh, and, and God wanted the rulers of men to understand this too. That God had all dominion. He had all power. Even over the rulers of men, whether they call themselves kings, priests, generals, or presidents. When it comes to the, the condition of the Creator God, He has providence over everything. And you know, you probably won't get a lot of arguments on that from a good number of people, a lot more people than you might think when it comes to that. I really do think when it comes to the real fact of the matter, <laughs> most people um, most people believe there is a higher power. They may not have a name for that higher power. Uh, and if they have a different language than us, they'd have a different name anyway. But they have that understanding. Why? Because in Romans chapter 1, the apostle says that everyone knows they're a created being. We can't escape it. We know it. And I have a saying, you know, that doesn't take very long before we realize that we didn't create any of these things and we know really well that our next door neighbor didn't do it either so we know that there is a god these rulers knew about god's god the god of heaven also regardless of their splendor and these kingdoms were a splendorous place if you will so i think that's how we end in chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar 
Um, he fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer oblation, which is worship, by the way, and sweet odors unto him. Now, Daniel did not want that to happen. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and to reveal her of secrets. See thou, <coughs> excuse me, has been able to reveal this secret. So, did Nebuchadnezzar know this? Yes. But you know, it's like everybody, isn't it? Sometimes we forget about that. It kind of fades into uh, second place and third place and fourth place, getting replaced with some of the other things in life. And if you were the king of Babylon, you'd have a whole lot of things there vying for the number one position, including your own uh, arrogance. So this is the situation that we find. I just wanted to get that said because uh, I think it sets the tone for what we find occurring. We have a struggle with rulers of men all the way through Daniel. And who are they fighting? At the end of it, we find that the, the real struggle is between them and God, between them and the uh, God of their own imagination or the real God of heaven. There's a religious element to every one of these rulers, some of them very powerful, including um, the uh, so-called madman of the uh, Seleucid kingdom, Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, the fifth or the fourth, I think it was. Um, he was an extremely religious person. Unfortunately, he... he <laughs> he resisted the God of the Jews. As a matter of fact, he hated the Jews and the God of the Jews. And uh, his God, uh, eventually he even, he even uh, went over to the God of the Romans, Jupiter. Uh, nonetheless, he ended, he ended badly. What, what we do have left over looking at it from our perspective is what a godless people, regardless of how grand they, they begin... If a, if a nation naturally uh, uh, turns away from God, they're going to face the natural, the natural consequences of it. That's right. And we have the, the history of the Jews to show us exactly that, that situation. And, you know, you can, you can uh, uh, spend a lot of time talking how faithless the Jews were, but we have to remember that faithless quality is also within the so-called Christendom world that we live in. What are they doing? Christendom is ignoring the oracles of God. They're ignoring the apostolic teachings of the Lord. If they would embrace those things, they would put off all of their divisions and all of their issues and become truly part of the body of Christ. So uh, this is a, a tendency, and, um, and, and we see the, the Jews are exposed not only in their faithfulness and the faithful individuals through their history, but also their weaknesses and the terrible things that they did.
and how God dealt with them through the prophets and through the, the situations that we find recorded in Daniel. As I said, starting with the captivity uh, all the way to the end of the Jewish age, is the, that is the text of Daniel. I think we can look, start looking at chapter 3 in Daniel. In chronology, it, it fits uh, right after chapter 2. With, uh, within the end of the same year or the next year, I guess he had to have time to build that image. I don't know how long it took him. But it starts off in this chapter in uh, just the first two verses. In the 18th year, I didn't figure that out. Um, but that doesn't mean the 18th year of captivity, by the way. Um, he was uh, he was involved um, actually um, before, and and we don't know for sure whether or not this is uh, the recording of his sole reign or including his uh, reign along with his father co-regency. But in his 18th year, by the way, that's in the Septuagint and and not in any of the other texts. Yeah. Well, the word his is not there. Okay. But it's in 18th year, Nebuchadnezzar, even though the spelling's different there, the king made a golden image. Now, we know that making idols of any kind was forbidden for the Jews, right? But he wasn't a Jew. Okay. He was not under the law. He, he hadn't become a proselyte yet, apparently. Its height was 60 cubits, its breadth 6 cubits, and he set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Now, that's 90 feet high by approximately 9 feet wide in breadth. So I don't know if it was round or it was rectangular. I don't know. It doesn't say, but it had a breadth. Could be the breadth could be the diameter of it. If it's roundish, or it could be the length of the the widest part of the uh, triangle of the uh, rectangle. But it was 90 feet high. Ha- have the remains of it ever been found? I think we not that I know. Probably of. talked about it when we went through it. Of course, when it says image of gold, it makes a person wonder: Was it solid gold? Was it was it Played it over um, like they used to do other things, make something out of wood or clay or something, and then play, and then put gold on it. It's possible. Doesn't say. It's not important, I suppose, to us. Uh, nonetheless, it was very valuable without saying. But the fact that it was gold is kind of telling, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar had just seen that vision and that had a gold. And Daniel had just told him that this golden head king is you and the kingdom. So, but I don't want to speculate. In verse 2, what's it say? Uh, And it's set up in the plain of, which is outside of Babylon. It's between Babylon and Susa. Uh, 
And he sent forth to gather the governors and the captains and the heads of the providence's chiefs, priests, and those who were in authority, and all the rulers of the districts to come to the dedication of the image. Now, what we don't find here is uh, Daniel in, in the story. So Daniel may have been gone somewhere doing the king's business. For some reason, he's not mentioned in this, uh, in this account. But many, many else are. And of course, all of these governors, the heads of the providence, uh, that's the, as the account goes, of course, that's why we find Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego involved in, in the story here. So, What is this this image? I wondered, do you suppose, is there a possibility that this golden image that Nebuchadnezzar built was, was, was trying to represent the God of Daniel, that he was doing some sort of obulation towards God by making this, this image? Uh, I, I can't believe that Daniel wouldn't have said... To, the, the uh, God does not uh, allow images made. Graven image of God is forbidden under the law. So that would be that would kind of sound like that he, if he made this that was representing the God of heaven, then he did so over the objections and the knowledge that God does not allow graven images. Most people just feel that the, the golden statue, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide, was really representing the king himself. Okay. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego certainly saw it that way. You know, it really doesn't say that. Nonetheless, the implication is there, isn't it? Because these kingdoms and these kings where, as I said, everything always turns to the religious aspect. The king becomes the god of the people, if you will. In, way, improperly. Huh? Also friends with Daniel and part of, the, right. part of the Jewish elite that was brought over. Yeah. Yeah. So, the instructions, of course, uh, that the Jews had received from God concerning this sort of thing, uh, would make it very clear that God would not be pleased with this statue that Nebuchadnezzar built. And it would be an impossibility for the Jews in captivity to do what was being required, to fall down when they heard. Uh, the, the idea was you hear, you hear music and you fall down. Uh, matter of fact, I'll read that a little section, uh, verse 4 through 6. This is what the, the herald said. Um, and herald or a spokesman there would cry out to the crowd. He said, To you it is commanded, O people, nations and languages. In other words, not just the Babylonians, all the servants, all the slaves, and all the captives, right? Everyone that's here that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, 
psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music. You fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. That was a command. And whosoever falleth not down, we have here, and worship, in the same hour he shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. So we have the, the account starting here. I think they were probably pretty serious about it. They built the statue. They built the furnace. I kind of got a feeling that somebody thought there might be some resistance. But it would have probably been short-lived, right? For a while. The Babylonians had to know that the Jews in general would not do this. I'm not saying some of them didn't to save their own life. We don't know and it doesn't say. So we probably shouldn't speculate. Nonetheless, we find, uh, I believe this whole event that's going to transpire becomes part of a great lesson for the king and for all those who are there with the king. Because this is a real, this is a real gathering of the nobles here. Uh, everyone is seeing and hearing what's going on. All right, uh, and there is about to be, as in everything God does, to make a a grand point and a real uh, a real time of learning and instruction. A miracle happens. Uh, we find it when covenants change, and, and we're going to find it here because God's trying to make a point here to Nebuchadnezzar concerning the Jews. You see, it wasn't anyone else except for three Jewish uh, princes of, of Judah that were thrown in the oven, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's who got thrown in the oven. It's a confirmation confirmation of a message. It is. It's a confirmation. And it's invaluable. And it's and it's incredible how the king dealt with it. Um, let's uh, let's just let's, let's hear some of it, starting in verse thirteen, um, because it becomes a real revelation to the Babylonians. And I think a real comfort to the Jews at the end of this, this whole account. Uh, verse uh, 13, I'll start there. Because the, 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 uh, the three men have already been brought before the king because they did not bow down when they heard the music. Even when they got a second chance, they still didn't. Then Nebuchadnezzar in wrath and anger came to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you serve not my gods? I wonder what kind of answer he was looking for there. And worship not the golden image which I have set up? Now, then, if you be ready, whensoever you hear the sound of the trump, the pipe, the harp, the second, the uh, psalms, the harp, and every kind of music 
to fall down and worship the golden image which I have made. But if you worship not, in the same hour you shall be cast into the burning furnace. And who is the God that shall deliver you out of my hand? Then answered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and said to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer thee concerning this matter. For our God, whom we serve, is in the heavens, able to deliver us from the, uh, from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will rescue us from thy hands, O king. But if not, be it known to the king that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the image which thou hast set up. Well, let's go on to verse 21. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and the form of his countenance was changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than usual. Seven, of course, being figurative for the ultimate heat. <laughs> Complete heat. Even the furnace would burn down with any more, okay? And, and full, full judgment on God's part, too. <laughs> That's right. Seven, seven times over. Mm-hmm. Very, very figurative and very telling. Until it should burn to the uttermost. I guess that explains it, huh? And he commanded mighty men to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, burning fiery furnace. Then those men were bound with their coats and caps, turbans, my, my Bible says, and hose, and were cast in the mit, into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. For as much as the king's word prevailed and the furnace was made exceedingly hot, then these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the midst of the fiery furnace and walked in the midst of the flame, singing praise to God and blessing the Lord. Boy, that reminds me of a jail, jail cell scene in the New Testament, right? Yeah. But we're out of time today. But we'll pick it up there uh, when we return next week, Lord willing, uh, to finish up chapter 3 and move on through our chronological look. Let us pray. We thank you, Father, for the blessings of this day, for the opportunity, Father, for us to examine your word, to learn from it, and to grow uh, in understanding towards you that we may be useful to those around us. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.